Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. I'm Celia Moore, host of the series, and today I will be talking with Nora Spinks, Chief Executive Officer of the Vanier Institute of the Family in Ottawa, Canada's capital. The Vanier Institute is a national independent charitable organization that conducts and publishes research and engages with the public on issues that affect families and family life in Canada. Nora has been a thought leader both nationally within Canada as well as on the international stage on the work family interface for the last 35 years. Before leading this NGO, Nora started and ran several businesses including Worklife Harmony Enterprises, a consulting and training firm dedicated to working across the public, private, and third sectors on creating supportive work environments, strengthening families, and building healthy communities. She ran that organization for two decades. I have a more personal and more selfish interest in inaugurating this podcast with Nora, though. Nora found me in Toronto 25 years ago when I was recuperating from the damage inflicted by an extremely abusive leader at a job that I had loved. I was exhausted and burnt out and grieving. Nora saw something in the husk that I was at the time and offered me the opportunity to work on a project for the Canadian federal government, making the case for why unemployment insurance benefits should be extended to individuals required to take time off work for caregiving responsibilities. That extension was granted on the heels of our work together and has been extended in several additional ways since, providing a lifeline for millions of Canadians who need to take time off work to care for gravely ill family members. I am so proud of that work we did together and so grateful for the opportunity it provided me professionally, as well as her reinstating my faith in humanity after escaping the extremely toxic leader by providing her amazing counterexample. We have remained friends and she has remained a mentor to me for all of these years. I could think of no better person to inaugurate this podcast on responsible leadership with than with her. Nora, I'm so glad we can have this conversation today. Thank you for joining me. Nora, thank you so much for doing this with me today. It's my pleasure. So I wanted you to be the inaugural guest on this podcast because you were the first responsible leader who was a model in my life. I'll explain a little bit more about that later, but I'd like to start by just asking, what does responsible leadership mean to you? Well, first of all, thank you for that honor of being the first and for that wonderful comment about our history and our relationship. Responsible leadership to me is really looking at people, planet, profit. People have to come first. And responsible leaders recognize that it's about people, it's about connections, it's about relationships, and it's about the connection to each other and the connection to the planet and ultimately in business, the profits. Where irresponsible leaders come into place is when they have that flipped inside out or upside down or only look at profits without looking at people and planet. And I think... Early in my career, somebody said to me that really good public policy is developed with people who have their head in the clouds and their feet firmly planted on the ground at the same time. And I think the same is true for responsible leaders. Their feet are firmly planted on the ground, but they have their head in the clouds looking forward, looking at opportunity, looking at possibility, looking at potential, and considering the short term and the long term 
implications to every decision, every action, every choice that they make going forward as a leader and how they model that to their followers. Humans are really bad at taking into account the long-term and the short-term simultaneously. And given that that's what's in front of all of us, our natural tendency is always to go short-term. How do you actually enact longer-term thinking when there's so many pressures on leaders to think of the short-term only? Well, I think responsible leaders, although most leaders are evaluated on the most recent quarterly results, it's really about what legacy are you leaving behind in the team, in the organization, in the economy, in society. And we need to make it a conscious effort to continuously look forward. As the CEO of the Vanier Institute of the Family, we have this concept of the 200-year present. If you're born today, you will have been impacted by your grandparents back 100 years, and you will likely have an impact on generations to come 100 years forward. So looking at a 200-year present and constantly checking what do we know from the past, how are we doing in the present, and how are we going to impact the future means you can't be anything but a responsible leader. That's a really simple and compelling mindset shift. So let's talk a little bit about your amazing career. You and I know each other, I've known each other for 25 years. Something close to that. When you were the head of Work-Life Harmony, a consulting firm that at that point was mostly working with organizations on building systems and policies and practices that supported families from within. And you started that in 1986 and you did that for 25 years before becoming the CEO of the Vanier Institute. What have the biggest turning points in your career been? Well, I think it's always been a connection. So it was somebody who presented an opportunity that was right for me at the moment. So when I was first approached by somebody to consider the idea of going into private practice and working with employers, it was not something that I had in my five-year plan. It wasn't something I had as one of my annual objectives, but rather it was an opportunity that was presented to me and the timing was right. And I said, yes, this is the right time for me to make this massive change in my career path. It wasn't a natural fork in the road where a decision needed to be made, but rather an opportunity to get off the path and start something new. And the same thing happened when the opportunity was presented to me for taking over the responsibility of leading the Vanier Institute. It was the right time. It was the right place. And it just happened to fit with my life and my priorities at the time. Over the course of your career, what do you consider your biggest accomplishments or the accomplishments that you're proudest of? I think there's several that I reflect on. And whenever we're faced with uncertainty or an inability to plan for the future, as we have all experienced during this period of pandemic, it's a wonderful time to reflect. And I reflect back on the things that I was able to either impact or influence or actually 
lead. And some of that has to do with policies and practices. There were some clients that were very reluctant to take a leap into the world of diversity and inclusion, flexible work arrangements, remote work at a time where most people didn't even know what VPN was, let alone willing to take the risk of having employees working sight unseen. And there were a lot of programs, policies, pilots, practices in workplaces that would not have provided the foundation for what we've been able to realize scaling up during pandemic. I also have a couple of very proud moments in public policy. So expanding maternity parental benefits and creating a brand new, for the first time in 27 years, the federal government in Canada introduced a new global benefit for compassionate care. And it wasn't great at the time, but it was a start. And it was the first time in 27 years that the federal government introduced such a a new benefit. So that was huge. I worked on that with you. We worked on that together. That's one of my proudest moments. We did. And it's, it's grown enormously since then. My career has been a lot about planting seeds. And that was one of those that we planted seeds in a very rough patch. And now it's flourishing and families are benefiting extraordinarily. And I also always wanted to make sure that I made a contribution to the community and have been a volunteer my whole life. And the creation of a suburban you shelter that was purpose built the first of its kind in the province was something i'm very proud of and has served tens of thousands of youth who would have not otherwise had the opportunity to stay in school stay connected get access to benefits get access to mental health services that i'm very proud of so one of the things that strikes me about who you are as a leader is that you are able to always remain optimistic and trusting. Now, I know both of those are hard for lots of people and especially trust, right? I know people that are sort of blind optimists and it's just the way that they're built. You're not a blind optimist, but where optimism just comes naturally. But I don't know that the world is set up in a way to naturally have people extend as much trust as you extend. How do you maintain that orientation in the world when people who trust easily are more likely than people who don't to at least occasionally have that backfire? Oh, it does backfire. And that can be shocking and painful and can knock you over or knock you back. No question. But it's also that is a learning opportunity and it provides you with more resources, certainly it has done for me, to be able to continue moving forward. And I I don't do anything just random, this is positive and optimistic, we're going to go forward. I remember hearing a, a quote early in my career where somebody said that either you're an optimist or a pessimist and the glass is half full or half empty, but a good consultant just sees too much glass. And it's really more about realism. It's more about what is and what can be. And for me, that's always been my orientation. I firmly believe that most people are interested in doing their best 
making a contribution, being the best parent they can be, being the best partner they can be, being the best colleague, employee that they can be. I focus on that. I know that there are always going to be people who are going to be schemers and scammers and, you know, who are going to be mean and ugly and rude. I get that. I'm okay with that. But I want to focus on all of the rest. And every success leads to more affirmation that there is more good in the world than there is negative and that there is more positive in people's interest moving forward than there is interest in harm. You talked about your successes. What about failures that you've learned from? I think there are always failures. When you're a trailblazer or a pioneer, it requires risk-taking. It requires courage and you need to be prepared to fail. And so trying to do too much too fast without getting enough people behind you for momentum was something I learned early on. I also learned when trying to build the U shelter that to get people convinced, you needed both their heart and their head engaged before they would open their wallet and give you their resources, whatever that happened to be. And I think that by working with that in mind, it allowed me to take those risks, recognizing that there would be times that I would fail, but learning from those failures, getting enough data, getting enough momentum, getting enough movement forward so that it wasn't me, it was us moving forward. And I learned early on, particularly in my trying to build business cases for organizations to move forward, it was much easier to engage their hearts first than their heads. But once you engage their hearts, you better be ready to give them lots of material for their heads. And then and only then will they be in a position to open their wallets, give you their time, their resources, or trust you enough to take the risk that you're asking them to take by making a massive change in the way that we do work or how, where, and when work is done or how we achieve work and family and and how we work together for the good of not just the department or the organization, but for society and economy as well. So with all of those things and all of your strengths, what do you consider to be your greatest strengths? What things are you happiest about in terms of the way that you lead others? One of the pieces of feedback that I've received often over my career is my ability to be empathetic and to be understanding and to be flexible, but at the same time, to be very clear on expectations and outcomes and focus on impact. I think for me, that's always been something that has been important to me, to have a team that is willing to go the extra mile to be there at all costs to take those risks with me and to trust me to not lead them down a path that will cause them harm or shame or humiliation, but it may take them out of their comfort zone a little bit. 
it may take them down a path that they never anticipated themselves being on before, but feeling comfortable, that's always been something that's been important to me. Well, you were always really good at that. I remember one of the very first times I spoke publicly to a large audience at a conference was with you and I did not want to do it. (laughs) You said, it's going to be fine. And of course it was, you know, you learn that in fact, even if you bomb in a conference room, you don't in fact die, which is the thought that you have in your head. I'm going to keel over and die, but you don't. And it went fine. And uh, your, your reassurance meant a lot to me at that time. What makes you feel conflicted? What makes you feel morally conflicted at work? You know, one of the, one of the challenges of being a CEO of a research and education organization and leading now a not-for-profit, apolitical organization is not being able to engage in campaigns or advocacy or telling people what they need to do. And sometimes I would love to be able to do that. But at the same time, I know that there are a lot of people who do that really well. And that's not me and my style. What I do better is to work very gently and very purposefully and very much behind the scenes in moving forward, whether it's policy, practice, programs, benefits, you know, one of my best pieces of feedback I get, whether it's immediately after a a conference presentation or a keynote or an executive retreat, either in the moment or a year or two later, somebody comes to me and says, you changed the way I think. And for me, as a researcher, as a leader, as, as a trailblazer, that is the biggest gift. And changing the way people think and subsequently their behaviors associated with that is incredible affirmation. Well, and ideally, right? That's what leaders do. We need to persuade people, either explicitly or implicitly, to behave in a way that they might not have behaved before and get people out of their comfort zone, right? That's a really hard thing to do. What is the best and worst pieces of advice you've ever received? <laughs> I, I think the worst piece of advice I ever got was suck it up. <laughs> if you are feeling uncomfortable or you're feeling disillusioned or discouraged or that things aren't going your way or that you can't make the change you want, just suck it up, move on. Don't let it bother you. I think it's the worst advice I've ever got. What should you do in that in those situations? The advice I got once from a CEO of a bank which at the time I did not appreciate. It was one of Canada's large uh, financial institutions. He said, don't be in too much of a hurry. This is going to take a generation. And I was livid. I was completely impatient. And I thought that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I was early career. I had big ideas. But in retrospect, he was right that really good ideas that change society, change organizations, change the way people think does take time. It doesn't mean that you can't have small incremental wins along the way, but whole change does take time. So this next part of the podcast we designed because when I 
teach MBA students about leadership. They always want to get to know the person behind the leader. So this next set of very fast questions is just designed to uh, uh, let us know a little bit more about you in, in a very quick way. So what is your favorite work of fiction? Winnie the Pooh. Why? Children are a big part of my life, and it's what's driven me my whole life, uh, is making the world a better place for children to grow up in. And I think A.A. A. Milne has got some nuggets of wisdom buried within the world of Pooh that stands true in the eyes of leadership. It teaches us about empathy. It teaches us about diversity, about inclusion, about tolerance, about communication, about compassion, about wisdom. Everything you ever needed to know about leadership, you can learn in the 100 Acre Woods. That is an excellent answer. What is your favorite secret skill? I make extraordinarily amazing cinnamon buns. <gasps> I just tried those in lockdown and failed. So I will have to get your secrets. I have tips. I have tricks. That is my secret skill. That's a pretty good secret skill. What is your personal motto? Pay it forward. I truly believe that we stand on the shoulders of those women and men who have come before us. And it's my job to make sure that those coming behind me have every advantage to meet their full potential, to achieve extraordinary results, to be able to have a life that they are proud of, that allows them to be who they are authentically, purposefully, deliberately going forward. So whether it's paying for somebody's coffee in a drive-through or paying for somebody's groceries at the grocery store or a student who's emerging in their career or somebody who's starting out as a first-time manager, pay it forward. It will come back in ways that you have no way of knowing in the future. I think that's something that really gets missed. A lot of leaders can be overly focused on making sure that they get where they need to go, right? And there's a worry that if you spend too much time thinking about others and what you can do for others, that your own advancement or esteem or career will get lost. But actually, it's flipped. The more you can attend to the, your stakeholders appropriately and kindly and well, the more influence you will have. I had a conversation recently with a journalist who let slip after the interview that they had contacted me as a journalism student many years ago. And I was the only person that they spoke to as a student that treated them like a professional and gave them an interview worthy of the A-plus that they earned. And I had no recollection. But I think that that just shows that you never know when you're going to touch somebody that's going to change their life trajectory or their career path or give them a little insight into a part of themselves that they never knew was there. And I think that's a big part of leadership. What is your favorite word? Gratitude. And I think reflecting on life as a leader during pandemic, we started off strongly with a sense of generosity and gratitude. And I think 
for the most part, we've been able to hold true to that going forward. Maybe not as loud and strong as it was in the first cycle of pandemic, but for me, gratitude is just such a delicious word. I know you have so many of these, but what is your favorite life hack? You know, I, I, I've been thinking about how we can make our lives easier and better. And I think, you know, it's no one specific life hack at all, but just being attuned and aware to other people's ideas and thoughts and experiments and being willing to, willing to test them and try them out yourself, whether it's the way you fold the top of a cereal box or the way in which you prepare for a speech or the way in which you engage using technology. I think life is all about hacks, finding what's right for you, your personality, your temperament that allows you to be who you are. In the workplace, we have this this concept of multi-purposing. So what can we do that will have multiple purposes, that will have multiple ripples? And we're constantly testing new ways of doing that. So it's no one particular life hack, but it's the idea of trying something new every day, every week, every month to see what discovery you can make. What about if you had to do something else entirely with your life? What would you do? I've thought about that, especially during pandemic when you, you know, it's a time for reflection. What if, what if, should I, could have, would have done differently? I really love what I'm doing right now. And every stage in my career and every stage in my life, I have always loved what I have done. It's not been a conventional path, but it has been mine and it fits me and who I am. So I wouldn't want to be doing anything else right at the moment. Well, what I love about your career is that that is actually true. You have never really done anything you didn't want to do. So unlike many of us who have been stuck in different places in different times when we had to suck it up or we felt we did at the time, I can't imagine you actually being in that situation, which is probably one of the reasons for your equanimity. <laughs> well, I have to say there have been moments where I would like to have been in a different place at a different time when I was feeling particularly uncomfortable, but it would not have stopped me doing what I wanted to do. And I have had the gift of being able to make a lot of choices. And I know that a lot of people and particularly women in this world don't have choices to make. They find themselves in circumstances with very limited choices. So I feel very privileged. I have not always had a fallback position. <laughs> I've not always had money in the bank. I have not always had room on my credit card, but it has been a gift to be able to make the choices that I've been able to make over my lifetime. I've had people in my life that have supported my wild ideas. And, you know, when I decide to leap, leap off a cliff to the unknown, have had people there cheering me on and saying, you're going to be fine even when I end up in a mound at the bottom of the cliff. Still, they're there. Get up. You can do it again. Uh, the next time will be easier. And for the most part, uh, that's been true. 
my colleagues, my friends, my family, my partner, my kids, they've always been there to support me. Well, that circles back to putting people first, right? Your whole career has been about 360 degrees of a person. All the, all the aspects need to be supported in order for everyone to thrive and for society to thrive. Absolutely. And that shouldn't be as revolutionary an idea as it seems to still be. <laughs> Less so than 25 years ago, but it still seems to be a little more revolutionary than I'd like. Yeah, less so. You know, I to put change in context, I tell the story about my family. So when my grandmother was young, she was working in a textile mill. And the day she became engaged to be married, she was escorted off the property and given a silver tea set. My mother, a whole generation later, was working at the same textile mill when she got married and she was allowed to stay. But the minute she became visibly pregnant with her first child, she was escorted off the property and given a silver tea set. By the time I had my first, women were allowed to be in the paid labor force pregnant. In fact, I, I remember being due in a couple of weeks and very large and very round standing next to a reporter who was in the same exact state. And they would only film us from the shoulders up because the idea of pregnancy in the workplace was not supported. And I remember her water breaking in the middle of the interview while she was gripping my arm and we carried on like it was nothing. Meanwhile, the camera crew, all males, were freaking out. We finished the interview, and calmly when it was done, she said, would somebody mind contacting my husband and letting him know that I'm on my way to the hospital? At that time, we were expected to return to work two or three weeks later, ready to roll again. But by the time my son became a parent, my son was able to take paternity leave. And he was able to participate in the birth of his child. He was able to take time off work to be able to be there, to be an attentive partner and parent. And that's a lot of change in just a few generations. When I think back to before my grandmother, there was not a lot of change four generations back from her. But four generations forward from her, a lot's happen. And so sometimes it's just about keeping perspective. We have come a long way. We still have a long way to go. Um, there's still a lot of work ahead, but we need to keep that perspective. Well, these last sets of questions is, is about the future. So that it's, a, it's a good segue into that, including thinking about this last year. You manage a think tank that engages in broad-scale research on a weekly basis what has been the hardest thing for you about le leading through COVID-19? Keeping other people's energy up is critically important and exhausting. Because not only do you have to keep yourself up and motivated and going and forward, but you've got to make sure that everybody else stays focused and attentive as well. And I think that that's something that all leaders have experienced in the past year, whether you're leading a team or you're leading a, an organization, because there is very little that we can plan, you know, and one of the things that leaders do is always have the eye on the horizon and always be focusing forward. But we don't know what's going to be happening day to day, week over week, what the boundaries or parameters are going to be. 
And so to keep yourself fit and focused and energized while you're doing that with a whole bunch of other people can be very taxing. The good news is that there, once your team is focused and energized and reassured, then they can feed back energy. But that first sort of heavy lifting can be exhausting. How do you restore yourself? I mean, I think this has been a real challenge for a lot of everyone through the pandemic, right? And when you said gratitude, I agree with you, but God, there were days that it was hard to feel grateful. Absolutely. And it's those tough days. It's like the the moment in a run that you just need to push yourself further or that in the middle of the night in the dark with that infant screaming, you've just got to get through it. And I think that pandemic has has given us all the opportunities to find out how strong we actually are, to find out how much we actually have in our reserve tank, how far we can travel on fumes, and how we can create the future we want to see going forward. Pandemic has given us a ton of opportunities to really think what's important, how, where, and when are we going to work. When there's this massive disruption and it's global, we have this opportunity to think what kind of world do we want to have? What kind of workplace do we want to have? What kind of work environment do we want to have? What kind of future do we want to create for the next generation of employees and and of citizens going forward? So what do you think the biggest ethical challenges facing us going forward are? Oh, I, I think there's a lot of ethical questions around the trade-offs, the environmental, the economic, the social, the individual, the collective. I think there are a number of ethical questions that leaders are going to be struggling with and moral dilemmas that we're constantly going to have to be assessing and managing with all the attention we can muster because there are people who have been very successful and profited from pandemic and others who are really suffering And the gap between those two is widening. I think there are a lot of questions that we're going to have to wrestle with individually and collectively around how to close that gap and how to make sure that we don't create these safety nets full of holes that many fall through, but rather create trampolines that people can, when they land on, can rise bigger, better, stronger, healthier organizations, individuals, teams, other leaders, countries in some cases. I think there's a lot of work to be done in the next little while. I love the idea of there being a trampoline at the bottom of the cliffs. It's a a good place for some trampolines. So what do you think of as the the biggest, since technology is going to play such a role in this, right? what do you think the biggest challenges are and opportunities are with the future being so technology-driven? I think we have to make conscious effort to use the tools to our benefit and not to have the tools drive us or our behavior. That the tools are there to assist us and to facilitate human interaction and human connections. 
we can't forget the human part, that we can't forget the power of touch. And for every high tech solution, we need to think of the high touch solution that goes with it. And I don't just mean physical touch. I mean the emotional connections that we make with each other. I've set aside from four to five o'clock every night of the week for just 30 minute connections with people. Pulse check, check in, how are you doing? What's happening in your life? What are you dreaming about? What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? What are you doing right now in this moment? Because those human connections are so vitally important. You know, I was on Facebook recently and there was a story of a little boy who said that when you hug, you have to hold still long enough for your hearts to find each other. You will never hug another human in the same way after hearing that story. I wish I knew this little boy who made that wise, wise observation. We have to make time for our hearts to find each other. Every decision we make has to consider the human element, every time we log on, every time we log off, every time we decide cameras on or cameras off, we have to ask ourselves, how is this impacting the human connection? How can we facilitate and maintain those human connections in a way that makes us all deeper, richer, wiser? You're making me a bit verklempt. I'm not, I don't tend that way. <laughs> and that's, that's not you, Celia. That's not you. <laughs> See, look what you can do to me with the human connection. So the, the, one of the reasons for this podcast is so that leaders whom I admire can sort of share their wisdom with future generations of upcoming leaders. What's your favorite piece of wisdom you'd like to share? You know, I, I often collect sayings or ideas from others and I stick them on my bulletin board behind my computer screen. So I continue to refer them to. And just looking at the ones around me today, it's interesting that most of them are poets or children's authors because I think they are leaders in their own right. And so whether it's Dr. Seuss saying, be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. And Maya Angelou, who I think is an extraordinary leader, often I reflect on her comment about people will forget what you say people will forget what you do, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And as a poet, as an artist, I think that's very profound. And the last one, I think also a poet from Ralph Waldo Emerson says, do not go where the path may lead, but instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And as a trailblazer, particularly as women in leadership roles, in sectors, in industries, in positions of leadership, we're constantly going where there is no path. We are constantly having to make decisions and choices in spaces and ways that nobody has ever done before. And 
again, part of pay it forward is leaving a trail behind you that others can follow and remove as many obstacles and barriers in the way so that those who come behind can do so with a whole lot less effort than it might have taken for us to break trail. Thank you so much for your time, Nora. I enjoy every conversation we ever have. I am so glad that we have maintained this connection for as long as we have. In, in many different countries, we've now seen each other. I, I deeply appreciate our connection and your time today. Thank you. Always a pleasure to connect with you and wish you and the podcast all the very best of luck going forward. And may you find joy breaking this new trail. Thanks, Nora. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Lutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. See you next time.